is an ancient Indian teaching story. Okay. Can you hear in the back? Of a yogi who comes to a, a master who happened to also be a king. He has to study with the teacher in order to attain enlightenment. And so the king gave him his first assignment, which was a, a bucket of hot oil uh, to be carried on his head. And he said, go through every room in the palace without spilling a drop. So the yogi did that went through every room of the palace very carefully and didn't spill a drop and came back uh, very happy with himself and what he had accomplished. And then the king asked him, he said, uh, who's having an affair with who in this palace? Gee, I don't know. Do you see any political intrigue going on? No, I was too busy paying attention to this hot bucket of oil on my head. I didn't want to spill anything. And he asked him all kinds of personal questions about life in the palace. And this very concentrated yogi couldn't answer one of them. He said, okay, now go back through the palace. Don't spill any oil, but let me know what's going on. First part of our retreat, we've just been balancing that bucket on our head with the hot oil. Some of you have been in a hurry to kind of peek and find out what's going on in the palace. But we keep telling you, go back to the breath. And don't make much of what's happening to you. Just breathe in and breathe out. Even though there's all kinds of intrigue going on in your mind, we've said, just let it come, let it go. But that's the, the secret of the, the samadhi practice, is that ability We are very engaged with the content of our mind. You could say obsessed. But anyway, we've had a lot of training um, thinking the same thoughts over and over again, imagining, worrying, planning, and so forth. The mind is very conditioned, mechanical, and it's old. It's all stuff that's been put inside of us over the years. And we're engaged with it. And the challenge of our practice of shamatha is to see if we can disengage at least somewhat from the stories in our mind and instead engage in the breathing. Sort of trade it all in. Trade all that stuff in, at least temporarily and at least to some degree traded in for just one thing. And, of course, that's not an easy thing to do because the breath is a little bit like just clear spring water. And all those other stories are all these incredibly varied drinks that we can have. Apple, cherry, raspberry. You know, now you have to have at least three or four fruits before anyone will buy anything. Just old-fashioned apple juice isn't enough anymore. 
And so we need all the help we can get. A community, people like Michael and I, reminding you, come back, come back, come back, come back. Why? What, what's the point of it all? Why do we work with the breath and come back to it over and over and over again? You hear phrases like concentration and shamatha calming and so forth. It sounds good. To begin with, the mind is scattered. There's a, an enormous wastage of energy. Look at it that way. The mind is dispersed. Uh, it has complete poetic license to go anywhere that it wants to. And so it can go into the past of five minutes ago or 25 years ago. It can imagine a future of 10 years from now. It can do anything it wants to. It's quite wonderful when you come down to it. It has imaginative freedom to make up whatever it wants to. Label, identify, symbolize, and so forth. The result of that is that tremendous amount of energy is scattered, dispersed. When we trade all of that in, we make a swap. And in exchange for all the different things that we could catch on to, of course, for the most part, that means attached to. Meditation is a departure from that, from the attachment to. We trade it all in for one thing, for just the breathing. And in the process, as your ability to do that develops, all of that energy that's been dispersed in terms of the varied content of the mind uh, is gathered together and unified around the breathing so that the mind, the breath, and the body come together. And there's tremendous power in that. It's somewhat like a magnifying glass that can aggregate the rays of the sun and create a fire. Because that's one of the things that we're, we've, been in, we've been trying to do since last night. And some of the benefits that come from that is as we slowly begin to learn how to do that, we create a refuge you can actually learn to create a place which you can come to rest in. And that's samadhi, it's sometimes called. That means the mind can develop a place where, which it can drop into. And in that place it can rest, rejuvenate itself, refresh itself, and of course uh, gather some energy from not scattering the energy that it usually does. It can heal. When you come out of it, you often know the value of it, sometimes more than when you're in it. The world is more fresh. Right now, if without this development, without the, the development of samadhi, there's an image in the Thai forest tradition of it being as if we're homeless people, where we have no shelter from the elements, and our possessions are vulnerable, then uh, little by little we build a bamboo, a wooden, and finally, let's say, a stone house. It's a place to come to, uh, to gain strength, freshness, energy, 
and then from which to re-enter the life of the mind, which is where we'll be going in a few moments. Or is carrying the bucket of oil throughout the palace and seeing what's really going on. We learn how to do this. We have a place to, as the Buddha put it, get relief. This is not enlightenment. This is not the uh, uprooting of all of the problems that we have in the mind. But it's a place where we can come to for relief. Sometimes there's a lot of pain in the mind, in the body and in the mind. Wouldn't it be nice if there was some way in which we could enter into a space for temporary relief from it? A concentrated mind, again, of course, depending on how concentrated, provides us with that kind of an opportunity. When we do that, when you get very concentrated, what comes along with it, as many of you know, you've had a taste of it, if not today, then on other retreats, what comes along with it is what we often call peace or joy, a certain kind of fulfillment that seems to come from within. And that's, again, another major benefit of this. We learn that there's a certain happiness that's possible right here and now. It seems to be intrinsic to the nature of being a human being. It's not something that we have to go outside for. It seems to be waiting to be tapped. And as the mind gets quiet, that's exactly what happens. We experience a kind of happiness that's not dependent on relationship, on money, on the weather. You tell me, all the different oscillations, stock market, the supreme oscillation. That's a bit liberating in and of itself. We become less desperate. If there's the possibility of just through being with the breathing in a consistent way, that we're able to tap a happiness that isn't dependent on the usual sources, the usual places that we look for, for happiness. It's a certain degree of liberation already in that we're not as desperate to grasp. We know that there is in us already some fulfillment that's attainable. Often you taste it and don't fully appreciate what it is you've tapped. Sometimes people will be talking about peace a lot and they've tapped it in small bits and pieces throughout a retreat and don't fully appreciate what they're on to. Don't fully appreciate what it is that's there. Just There's no energy crisis on this level in consciousness. It's all you want. And so the mind gets, can get quiet. And when it gets quiet, it also gets very spacious. The two really go together. What also comes along from this kind of practice, what we've called shamatha practice, is that we're not nourishing or reinforcing a lot of our negative tendencies. We give it a rest. That is, although we don't uproot, let's say, I'm assuming you know these three, greed, hatred, and delusion. 
you don't uproot them by entering into a concentrated state, but you also don't strengthen them. You don't feed them. During the time that you're in a concentrated state, there's a certain fulfillment that happens that doesn't necessarily feed greed, hatred, or delusion. So that to some degree, they can even wither a little bit. Their strength weakens a bit. Of course, typically what happens is as we get very concentrated and calm, uh, greed finds out about this. And it realizes it's being left out. And so it just, uh, being brilliant, it grasps hold of the silence and just says, this is my silence, at which point it's noisy again. And we're back out in the cold, homeless, once again. Other benefits, there really are quite a few. I'm just going to list a few as we move into the inside aspect of practice. If you notice, we've been emphasizing surrender. We've been emphasizing the simplicity of just uh, breath awareness, just sitting and breathing. Simplicity can be tremendously helpful in this very complicated life of ours to find out that it's possible to have a source of joy that's quite simple. So that just to find that out can be an antidote to often what are extraordinarily complex lives. Of course, there's a phase of difficulty some of it having to do with our dramatic underestimation of the the possibilities of breath awareness. It's so taken for granted and unassuming, it's very difficult to grasp the possibility that a simple event like breathing can take one all the way to enlightenment. That's what the Buddha says. The Buddha attained enlightenment using Anapanasati. At least that's our record. So that's helpful. We can become a little bit more simple and understand not as just an ideology the beauty of simplicity. We can see it in our own life as we sit. Nothing special is happening. We're just sitting here quietly and breathing and we can be quite happy. Surrender. Michael and I have mentioned that a lot. Uh, Surrender is learning this art of allowing. Can we permit the breath to unfold in its own way? Just the way... It wants to. Let the breath assume whatever rhythm or even lack of rhythm that it wants to. And can we begin to learn how not to try to fix everything? For much of our life, our training, even in terms of observation, it's very difficult for us to just look at something because so much of observation has a profit at the end of it. From long, for a long time, We look at things for some value in it, to get something out of it. We look at it from an angle. We have some calculation that's involved. And so it isn't even really clear seeing, because the seeing is motivated. It's a means to some end. And of course, what we're learning here is how to just see, how to just observe, period. If we can learn to surrender to the breathing, that is, uh, and you do that by seeing how you're not surrendering, how you control it, how you try to make it into a certain pattern. Perhaps the out-breaths happen too fast or not fast enough, or you want more air on the in-breath, or we all have our different patterns that we impose on the breathing. 
as we begin to see that, because it's all observable, and that's the beauty of mindfulness, it sees everything. If you'll just remember to do it, it sees everything. And in the seeing, what starts to happen is the tendency to control, to attempt to fix, attempt to engineer, uh, to calculate, starts to weaken, wither, and even fall away. When we move on to the mind itself, which is what we'll be coming into next, the direct study of all the different mind states, uh, it's a tremendous help. If we've learned how to surrender to just the breath, which is relatively easy, compared to surrendering to loneliness, surrendering to fear, surrendering to anger. But unless we can allow these states to be exactly as they are, we can't really observe them clearly. What we're doing is tampering with them, fighting with them, modifying them, and so forth. So we're learning a lot on just the simple breath. And there's more, but it's enough. One last one. There's a health benefit. We don't talk about it much. Uh, It's in the Buddha's original teaching. It's scattered throughout suttas where he mentions the value of conscious breathing and that it has an effect on your health. Although we're not trying to change the breath, in fact, we're learning how not to do it at all, to just leave the breath alone, when you become sensitive to the breathing and conscious of the breathing, Probably you've already seen this. Uh, Mindful breathing changes the quality of the breathing. It's not that you're trying to change it. It's that as the breath becomes conscious, you can feel a change in the breath. It can become more refined, more subtle, deeper. And if you do this over a period of time, like years, there's no question that the, the nature of your breathing is dramatically rehabilitated. In the process of doing that, you'll probably come up against some resistances, emotional blockages, which can be, again, observed and let go of. And as we do that, the breath flows more freely. And with that comes more energy because all the systems of the body, of course, including the brain, are tremendously helped by free-flowing breathing. Okay, so we've been doing this and the instructions have been stay with the breathing. Now what? What I mentioned was that I would give you this second set of instructions so that uh, we have a complete sense of how this practice works. Uh, What I'm attempting to do, and I don't know if I can accomplish it really, I'm going to do my best, in only three days, of course we can't uh, fully go into all the implications of this. I'm assuming that all of you have already been practicing and that even if you can't fully do what I'm about to talk about, you'll get a sense of of this practice and begin to learn uh, how to work with the breath if it turns out that that's a method you want to use. To work with the breath not simply to calm down or to get concentrated, but to use it to develop insight as well. Uh, The ancient Chinese had a a way of looking at, uh, I like their phrase for this practice, translated in English, it's serene reflection. Um, The technical name for what we have been doing and are going to do is shamatha vipassana. Shamatha can be translated as calm, tranquility, serenity. 
it's training in how to help the mind learn to be serene and peaceful, calm, tranquil. And vipassana is deep seeing, clear seeing, insight, seeing into. The Chinese called it serene reflection. That is, first you develop a mind that becomes serene. And then from that place of serenity is the capacity to look into itself. The mind that has some degree of serenity is now in a position where it can see deeply into itself. Otherwise, what we have is wildness trying to capture wildness. A noisy mind trying to get to know itself. It's sort of like running around in circles with thought predominating, trying to think our way to freedom or think our way to peace. It doesn't work. At some point, we have to allow the thought process to go into abeyance. And that's what we've been doing. I'm sure all of you have had moments where the mind has been calm, even if it's just three or four breath moments. You've tasted it. It, With practice, that just develops. It becomes more continuous. It becomes a place that's more accessible, which which becomes part of your life, something you can draw upon when you need it. So reflection here, serene reflection, is not thinking. Think of it as a lake that becomes totally serene. Sometimes that's a poetic image used. And when a body of water is serene, it reflects accurately what's in front of it, like a mirror. becomes mirror-like. So our practice is developing that mirror-like capacity of the mind so that it can reflect and see deeply into us. Each one of us is fashioning our own mirror to see deeply into ourselves. The purpose being understanding and letting go, letting go of suffering. Okay. Um, The traditional way of practice with shamatha, vipassana, with serene reflection, is you develop one and you develop the other. But it's not that you have to perfect one and you don't move on to vipassana until you've uh, totally perfected calm and concentration. But rather, you, you need a certain modicum of calm. You need a certain level of concentration uh, to be able to do any reasonable insight work And then you do the insight work, and uh, they both deepen each other. Calmness, concentration, provides us with the basis from which insight is possible. Every time the mind sees deeply into itself, it understands something. It understands a fear. It understands an attachment and how that attachment has caused suffering, not as a theory, but by direct perception in a given moment. Every time we do that, there's some peace that follows it. So insight makes it easier to become peaceful. Peacefulness makes it easier to develop insight. Finally, they disappear into each other. They're really just concepts as well. When you're practicing as we have been, practicing just being with the breath alone, uh, that's officially what we're doing. 
and that's called shamatha. But in parenthesis, you could say vipassana, or whisper it. Because in the process, sometimes you learn something, even though that's not officially what we're doing. In shamatha practice, the emphasis is on sticking to the object, in this case, the breath, trying to maintain the continuity of attentiveness to this particular object. We're not emphasizing seeing all, seeing all. But despite that, don't you sometimes learn about yourself as you see the many ways in which you prevent yourself from being with the breath? Sometimes spontaneously, something comes up which is quite helpful about yourself and liberating. So that uh, conceptually, it's nice and clean. We just do shamatha. But of course, from time to time, some insights come as well. And now let's say we're going to be doing some insight work. You can't do it unless there's some concentration so that they're always there together. But now it's more vipassana in parenthesis, shamatha. Because you need a certain degree of concentration just to notice, to see what's happening. The instructions change now. And I'd like to uh, lay out these instructions with the beginnings of uh, some hints as to how to work with uh, work from here on in, uh, and also within the limitations of just three days, uh, suggesting how you might relate to these instructions. I think as you hear the instructions, you'll get a sense of uh, what it's about and why. Why do we do this? And whatever needs to be clarified can be taken up in interviews and the remaining couple of days that we have. And Michael will clarify investigation a bit more tomorrow. It's a very different mode that I'm going to suggest now. The first mode is being with one object, coming back to it over and over and over again, the breath. Now, the second mode of practice, together, this is called the condensed method of Anapanasati. In the second mode of practice, Uh, there's already some calm and concentration adequate to now release yourself from such a tight hold on the breathing so that now you're still in touch with the breathing but now it's a quite different mind mode of attentiveness that we're trying to develop in many ways very, very different now instead of focusing in on one thing there's an openness to whatever is there Now we have to learn something very different. We're still with the breathing. The awareness is grounded in the breathing and that we've been developing that when we work with the breath here in the hall or when you pay attention to the breath walking or throughout the day. And now we have to learn a somewhat different art. It's not totally unrelated but in some ways very different. Uh, We had a very clear agenda. We had the breath. And now there's no agenda. What we're learning how to do is to just sit. Breathing is happening anyway. And we sit and breathe. The degree to which the conscious breathing has taken for you, it's from that place that there's an awareness of whatever turns up. Now, what is being asked of us is to just uh, drop all of our calculation, scheming, goals, projects, and so forth, and learn the art of doing absolutely nothing. It's a very high art. 
As one teacher, Soan Roshi, put it, take it easy and do nothing. Linchi said it before. It's common in the Zen tradition. Just sitting, some of you have heard that. It's a very mature practice to do nothing. Because what you find is as you sit, the mind has been tremendously trained on doing things. Getting, doing, going, making, fixing. It's always throwing something ahead of it and itself as a goal, some ideal, and then running after it. And here what we're learning is to relax into the moment, to permit each moment to be exactly the way it is, with no attempt to modify it, but simply to know it intimately. And the breathing helps us. So concretely, what might that be like? Let's say you might calm down somewhat. And then you sit with the breathing. And as you're sitting and breathing, you feel ready to open the field of attention up a bit, to open it up rather. It's not a bit, it's just open. And while you're sitting, suddenly there's just quiet. So you're sitting and you're breathing and you're listening to the silence. And then a chirp, chirp comes in and you hear the chirp, chirp. And then somebody walks in a little bit late into the hall and the floor squeak and suddenly there's irritation and you're aware of the irritation. Breathing in, there's the awareness of the squeaking of the floor. Breathing out, there's the awareness of being annoyed. So the breath is still there, only now the breath is a kind of anchor, a support which enables us to attend to everything that's other than breath. Namely, the whole universe inside of us and outside of us, whatever's in our field of attention. So the different bodily conditions, the different moods, the images that pass through the minds, thoughts, sounds, smells, sights, you name it. We're now totally open to it. And while breathing in and breathing out, we attend to whatever is there. So the art is the art of doing nothing, not... uh, having some sense of what's supposed to be there, but rather sit in this state of openness and the training here from here on in, I think is the core of our practice myself. It certainly is of my practice and that is learning unconditioned or unconditional openness. You find if you sit that you have conditions Maybe loneliness comes up. I don't want to pay attention to loneliness. It's too painful. And we all have used a tremendous amount of energy to escape from loneliness, fear, and all things like that. I mean, if you're human, you know what I'm talking about. I assume we all are. And we have a lifetime of uh, developing dramatic escapes from these states that we don't like at all. We're frightened of them or they uh, are unflattering or whatever the reason. We're brilliant. We have ways of escaping by thinking. We can brilliantly explain what's happening. Oh yes, I'm uh, frightened because um, uh, the family structure has been undermined and a whole sociological thing like on a computer printout comes out. And it's very, it can even be exciting. If you have a, a good intellectual mind, you can put forward a very wonderful and 
fulfilling statement, explanation of why what's happening is happening. But it's a, a very high class defense. You're not feeling what's happening. Or we just become absorbed in anything else. Food, movies. Suddenly we start calling up all our friends. Book, dive into a book. There really is no limit to what we can become absorbed into. And so we use a tremendous amount of energy. We have an elaborate network of escapes. Now the practice, and this I think is very important to understand because you see, see this dynamic, it's so helpful. Just imagine for the moment how much energy we use avoiding what we don't like, what we're afraid of. We're even afraid of freedom. Just imagine how much energy over a lifetime has gone into uh, coping, putting up with, delaying, hesitating, not taking care of, denying, repressing, you know, all those words. Tremendous amount of energy. And if it worked, that would be wonderful. We wouldn't be here if it worked. We'd be enjoying Passover or Easter instead. <laughs> instead, we have to be here. We're like the, the dunces who have flunked. We have to come here for remedial training. Well, what if all that energy that was used to avoid the moment, to avoid certain moments, certain breath moments that are not to our liking, what if that energy, instead of being used to escape, was, were, was, uh, instead is used to observe? Can you imagine the power of that quality of attention? When you finally stop fighting and accept the necessity and actually finally beauty of directly experiencing your life as you live it, or as being intimate with yourself. This is not thinking, although you can be intimate with your own thoughts. When you stop wasting energy on strategies that don't work, and instead marshal that energy for the simple, direct experience of what's happening, that's seeing, direct seeing. Insight meditation flourishes as our ability to see in a naive and innocent way develops. I intentionally use those terms. Those are not good words in the world. If you're naive or innocent, people will chide you. Your parents will say they'll worry about you. People will take advantage of you. But in mindfulness work, those are good words. Because we're trying to see our life in a fresh way. You've heard Michael and I mention fresh, stale, trying to come to the breath as if for the first time. But you know, we have versions of our life that we've gone over even more than the breath. Over and over and over. We really think we know ourselves because we've had so many characterizations. We've repeated our story to probably hundreds and thousands of people by now. And amazingly, sometimes it does seem fresh, doesn't it? Still... If it's a new person, a new audience, <laughs> you go through, you know, growing up in Brooklyn and all that stuff. God, how many more times? Well, what if we could come to our fear in a fresh way? In fact, throw away the word fear, throw away that it's my fear, which is, of course, the big problem. And when there's real observation, there isn't my, because real seeing has no observer in it. 
There isn't a self-conscious entity that's doing the mindfulness. There's just the clear seeing. And that's a state that we mature into as we practice. That seeing has no past. It's not colored by memory. It's preconceptual. It is not for or against anything. It is not prejudiced, in short. It's much the way a naturalist observes nature. At least it seems some of them do, and perhaps you've done it. When you, It's just a delight of seeing, of learning. To me, that's one of the great fruits of the practice. But at first, we're very remedial. We practice mindfulness because it's kind of grim and medicinal to try to get, get out of our suffering. But little by little, you understand that there's something beauty, beautiful as we explore and investigate and take a look at our life. It's our life, and we are firsthand investigating it. What could be more compelling? At any rate, what's maintained is that if it's freedom, if it's wisdom, if it's compassion that you're interested in, it comes this way. It comes out of, at least on this path, it comes out of clear seeing, and that leads to understanding, and it's understanding that frees us. Understanding here is not intellectual, although that can be useful too, but that doesn't have very much transformative power. Because we know that we are capable, and there are some people who are amazingly capable, of powerful intellectual explanations. You, of Dharma, Dharma explanations, the Buddha said. And it doesn't seem to make much difference. What seems to change is firsthand, change us, is firsthand, clear, direct seeing. But that seeing has to have some stability. It has to have strength in it. And that strength is built up in this very gentle way that we've been going about, this quiet passion that our practice is. It's a very unassuming, quiet passion. And more and more as you get into it, as you see the fruit of direct investigation and clear seeing, you see how it helps you to let go of that which is burning you. We call that insight. The insight helps us to let go when we see things are impermanent. And when the mind gets clearer, it can see with greater depth and convincingness how impermanent everything is. We see that the body is not a solid entity, but it's a, a process of energy, constantly changing. Even more revolutionary, what we think of as being me, or mine, my identity, when we look carefully at that, we see it's a flow of images that keep changing. There's nothing that you can point to and say, this is me. You can do it, but it won't last. And it's followed by another image and another, and they're inconsistent, contradictory, and they don't, they're, they're not trustworthy. Finally, you begin to see that there's nothing that is the basis for what we think of as a self. And yet, it's awfully convincing that there is a solid core there to which everything is happening. But that's only convincing because of unawareness. The prerequisite is ignorance, ignoring the way things are. Dharma is correcting that by seeing the way things are. Believing in emptiness or a lack of self, uh, of substantiality, is not meant to be an ideology. It's not something that uh, you're supposed to agree with 
and then that, then that makes you a Buddhist, and then you can feel secure that you belong to a group. This is the religion. They've never they don't create wars. There are no holy wars. They're gentle and very sweet people, and then you feel good about that. Many eat vegetables exclusively, but that's not the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha's teaching is there are certain uh, principles that are put forward, certain teachings. And he's saying now, this liberated me, but it's not solving your problem. You have to do it yourself. You need first-hand knowledge. You have to repeat what I did. Examine yourself. And in order to examine yourself, you have to equip the mind to be fit to do that. And that's why it's a training. It's a journey. It's just We're willing to go through all kinds of training, to climb a mountain, to dive into the water to do almost anything. Dance, we'll get all kinds of training. Help, education. Do you think that wisdom and liberation requires less than that? How could it be? This is the most difficult thing that's asked of a person. We're asking us to face ourselves. And for some reason, apparently, it's very difficult for us to do that. And what we're doing is... Gently, gradually, but in a very sustained way. And there's only one direction once you get on this path. There's no turning back. It's in this direction. It's in clear seeing, self-understanding, and the freedom that comes from that. So the second set of instructions has to do with now, while breathing, observing the arising and passing away of whatever is there. Just sit and enjoy the show. If you can, sometimes you can't because fear comes up and then we fall into old patterns. But little by little we learn how to approach fear, that it is workable. Fear can be observed. Once we examine it carefully with a mind that's been strengthened by shamatha practice, as we look into a fear, we see that it really isn't my fear. It really isn't me. It's just some energy that's temporarily there. It's insubstantial. It has a wave-like or cloud-like nature. And if you stay with it, you'll see it dissolves and it's gone. If you do that enough times, sometimes even just a few times if it's very clear, your relationship to fear will never be the same. Because you understand that you're not, little by little, you're no longer frightened of fear. Because you've gotten to know it. You've become familiar with it. And you can see that it's not something that you can build a self out of, which we have been doing. It's circular. And this capacity to build a self out of it has made it frightening and strengthened it. So insight undercuts all of that. It disentangles us from that which is causing the problem. And so the practice now becomes sitting and breathing, sometimes exclusively to calm down, Sometimes, when we feel that we're reasonably calm, opening the field of attention up and learning how to ju- learn the art of taking it easy and doing nothing and just being with what turns up. It's not running after things with a butterfly net, but rather just sitting and breathing and just let the world come to you. Don't worry, it will. If it doesn't, that means it'll be very still, then that's what's come to you. Then sit in that stillness. Soak in that, in that stillness. Let it, let it operate on you. And then when the stillness falls away and 
an emotion comes up or a bodily pain, then that's what's there. So then you're with it because it's there. It's just the fact of this moment. Your life is this way. Now, if uh, a pragmatic test would be, are you able to bring these events into focus? If fear comes up, let's say you feel you have gotten calm, and now you're sitting in an open way, and suddenly loneliness turns up, or boredom, or some state that is problematic. If you find that when you turn to it, you're swallowed up by it, that you can't really observe it, that it goes out of focus, that you start psychologizing and thinking and analyzing and uh, entertaining it so it becomes worse, then probably it's best to go back to the breath, to shamatha, the simple breath, to fine-tune your attention once again. Sometimes you can do that in just a few breaths, and then you can return to this open field. At other times, just finish the sitting that way. Now, how to work artfully back and forth between shamatha and vipassana, some of that will become clearer as you go on and start practicing this and then bring up problems and questions. But the art is learning which to do when. Again, you don't have to perfect calmness. You don't have to wait until you've uh, gone deeply into the jhanic states, for example, deep states of absorption. But you need a certain degree of calmness where uh, thinking thins out a bit. The hindrances are not so powerful. They're not controlling you. The breath is flowing a bit more freely. There's more space between thoughts. The body is a little bit more calm. And then jump in, experiment, open up the field and just sit and be with what turns up. You won't probably be able to do it forever. At a certain point, you'll tire or you'll start getting lost in things and then you go back to the simple in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath. And you'll have to learn. It's an art form. I can't give you a... It's not like assembling a vacuum cleaner. It doesn't work that way. You have to learn artfully whether to... uh, work on the mind's capacity to be calm, and then when you have enough concentration and calm, how to bring that into this open state where everything that turns up is examined. Examined here again, not with thought, but with clear seeing. And seeing its nature, looking into it as deeply as we can. And seeing, for one thing, the basic insight is of impermanence. We already know that everything is impermanent but it doesn't seem to free us because we know it at a certain level. It's got to sink into our bones. We've got to really get it because the truth is everything is impermanent. Things are constantly changing. But we're not living as if that's true. And so the impact of the law has got to, of this impermanence has got to become so clear that we see that it's unintelligent to live in a way that doesn't take this into account because it never works. It only brings sorrow because the world continues to keep operating in accordance with this law. And it's teaching 24 hours a day. The law of change is not asking for permission. It's not beholden to anything. It's just, it's happening. And so if you can begin to see that can do it on the breath as well. Begin to see how each breath changes. 
how no mood remains forever, how no bodily condition remains forever, how the images in the mind come and go, how you like being at IMS, how you hate being at IMS. Vipassana is fantastic. I'm going back to Zen. At least the koans, I mean, you know, it's, at least it's words in there. Even though they're crazy words, at least they're words. And you just see everything is arising and passing away, coming and going. And it's out of seeing that that the letting go becomes more developed and it's the letting go that takes us to freedom. Letting go of what? Did anyone think that? No. A bunch of highly developed people here. I thought it. I guess I need more training of this kind. I'm just going to leave you with this. I'm not going to go into it. I'm just going to leave you with it. The Buddha, in a number of places, gives the most concise treatment of the whole teaching. And he says, the whole teaching amounts to this. Under no conditions attached to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. Don't attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. What we're letting go of is the tendency to make self out of everything. And once you make self, then self possesses things. Once you have a self, then of course you have mine or not mine. And what the Buddha is saying is, this is finally the root of the suffering. Greed, hatred, and delusion are in the service of me. Who is it that wants? Who is it that hates? Who's confused? And so insight meditation and all Buddhist practices that emphasize wisdom is a looking into this to find out what this is about, to see it clearly, so as to be freed of this burden of self. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? <laughs>